this is the Samaritan woman today. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learnt of when the Lord learnt of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Thanks so much, Coralie, for bringing that word to us. Well, good morning, one and all. Welcome to church. Let me add my welcome to those of you who are gathered here this morning and those of you who are online as well. It is great to have you with us. 
And uh, as Coralie said, we are continuing our series into those who've encountered Jesus. And uh, in particular, we're not actually looking at just those who had a good experience with Jesus. We're looking at those who had a negative experience with Jesus as well. And uh, it's, it's an encouraging series. It's great to go through and, and look at how different people interacted with Christ while he was actually on this earth. And obviously this morning, I'm going to be digging in a little bit more into the story of the Samaritan woman. And uh, I'm not sure what you think when we think about the Samaritan woman, but I suppose some of us are already starting to think about this woman and the type of lifestyle that she must have lived. But before we go there, I want us to think about something that actually happened before this account. I want us to think about what happened in chapter 3 of John. And think about the whole book of John. The, the book of John is written to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world. And John also wants to emphasize the desperate need of all of mankind to submit their lives fully to Christ, to accept Him as their Lord and Savior. So with that in mind, we go back to John 3. And John presents us with the first of many people throughout the book of John who so obviously and desperately need a Savior. And that person is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews, he's a Pharisee, he is a politician, he's a scholar, he's highly moral, he has a name and a reputation, and he comes seeking Jesus at night, possibly in order to protect that reputation a little bit. He doesn't want people to see him seeking after this fanatic. And there's a, such a contrast between Nicodemus, this first person that John presents, and the second person that John presents who needs a saviour in this Samaritan woman. But there's a foundational truth that is true for both of these people. They both desperately and equally need a saviour. And I don't believe it's a coincidence that we have this righteous, holy, pure man followed by this woman, one of those women. And it clearly shows that no one is too holy, pure and righteous to not need salvation. And no one can be so immoral, so beyond help, so low that they can't be saved. The respected Nicodemus, the immoral Samaritan woman, both in desperate need of the same gospel message of salvation, just like all of us. Let's pray. Father, this morning's about you. It always is. So Lord, just clear the clutter in our minds and let us focus upon you. Let us hear your voice this morning, Lord, whether we're here in the auditorium or at home Wherever we are in Australia, Lord, listening to this message, reveal your truth to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin to look into this passage of Scripture, it's interesting to note something at the very start uh, in John 4, 3 to 4. And this is talking about Jesus, and he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. John says he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. And it's true that this would have been the shortest possible route uh, to travel from Judea to Galilee, but Jewish people simply didn't do that. They didn't pass through Samaria. They would take a longer alternative route. 
And they did so in order to avoid any contact with the Samaritans. And so at the time Jesus arrives in the area of Samaria, there is this continued smoldering tension between the regions of Judea and Samaria. And obviously it's based on race and religion, but uh, it the hostilities began way back uh, with the Assyrian colonization in 2 Kings 17, if you want to read about that. And as we read that Jesus passes through the region of Samaria, the, the, the comment that he meets a Samaritan woman is, is quite okay, but the expectation would have been that he would have just walked past. He wouldn't have even acknowledged who she was if he was being a good Jew. The idea that he would actually talk to her it's beyond comprehension. And Scripture says he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus acknowledges a call for him to minister to a people who were lost. And these people will ultimately be blessed because of his presence with them. And that blessing begins with one Samaritan woman. And we know that this woman is unique. It's interesting that this woman is not named in this account. We don't know who she is. And she's referred to on two occasions as a woman of Samaria. And this woman is not only considered a foreigner to the Jews, she's also considered beyond redemption. Jews had a number of reproaches for the Samaritans. They used to say things like, He who eats the bread of a Samaritan is as he who eats swine's flesh. And we know that they consider pigs unclean. So that's a massive insult. They would say things like, no Samaritan will be made a proselyte. This is a Gentile who was converted to the Jewish faith. They don't believe they can actually be proselytes. And they would also say things like, they have no share in the resurrection of the dead. The Jews believed they were beyond redemption. They couldn't be saved. They were that lost. And yet here is Jesus doing what no other Jew would voluntarily do. He talks on his own with a woman, strike one. You don't do that. And then this isn't just any woman. This is a Samaritan woman. And this isn't just any Samaritan woman. This is one of those women. The woman came to the well to draw water in the middle of the day. She didn't come in the cool of the day like all the other women did. Women did. And we know, we know that the walk is about a mile and carrying water at the best of times in those large jars is hard work. It's sweaty. It's onerous. And the time she chooses would have been particularly hard. But she sees that she has no other option. She prefers to come then than when the other women do. And part of living in this type of community was that the women would head out early in the morning to go and gather water. And when they arrived at the well, in this case, Jacob's well, they would gather around and they talk about the events and things that were going on in the city. And so, if you like, they would just gossip there. They would enjoy some time together uh, in a largely male-dominated um, city. And, and they would just enjoy this personal time together. And the thing is... She wouldn't want to be a part of that. She was often a part of those conversations. And we can allude to that because of what Jesus says in verses 17 and 18, where he talks about the five husbands and the man that she presently is with. And we don't know for sure, but it's highly likely that the women knew of her experiences with men, knew that she had five husbands, knew that she was living in adultery with this other guy. 
And so she wasn't like them. She lived in a way they deemed unacceptable. And as she speaks with Jesus, it becomes obvious she's not only socially isolated and an outcast, she's also isolated from God. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She has some knowledge of God, but the worship she remembers or participates in has very little impact upon her. And so she's also a spiritual outcast, like all the other Samaritans. And it has been made clear, I think, but let's state it categorically. She's a sinner. And we know that reading through this passage that this woman has questionable morals. And what is not really evident is that this woman would have known about adultery and God's condemnation of that. You see, what the Samaritans did, they held to the first five books of the Old Testament. They actually had the Torah and they held quite closely to that. And so she would have been aware of adultery and God's condemnation of that. And for reasons unknown to us, she's chosen to live this lifestyle even though she knew it was wrong. And she comes to this well and she encounters a weary Jesus and his desire is that she will know and understand her sin in order for her to have... Sorry, he he has this conversation with her and when he asks her about her life and then he speaks to her about the living water, he makes one request of her. Go and call your husband, and then come here. It's interesting, isn't it? As Christians, we don't like admitting that we sin. But it's a fact of Scripture. We're told again and again and again that we do. And the thing that Jesus does throughout Scripture, in his time on earth, is that he constantly deals with the sin in people's lives. He knows the blessings that could be this woman's. He knows the blessings that could be ours if only we would confess our sin first and foremost. And for this woman, that blessing will never be realized if she doesn't confront and deal with the sin that is in her life. And she responds to Jesus, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you are right in saying so. For you have had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And her life is laid bare. We don't know what happened regarding her five husbands. We could cut her a bit of slack and say each of them died. But even if that was the case, after the succession of five men, she is found living with this sixth man. And he is not a husband. And so the depths of her sin is revealed. And she would be considered immodest, lacking purity. She would be an outcast, one of those women, as I've said a few times. And perhaps this is emphasized in the attitude of the disciples when they return, because they come back and they marvel that he was talking with a woman. That's the first and foremost thing that I said before. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? And I believe the disciples would not have withheld these questions if it was anyone else but Jesus. But they've seen the way Jesus interacts with people. And so they see him talking to this woman. And they might have questioned, why would he talk to a woman such as this? They might have thought this. And they wouldn't have known. They wouldn't have understood what was going on. But they were too afraid to ask. 
But we need to understand that they did not believe for one moment that there was anything unwholesome in what Jesus was doing. And so the questions they could have asked and would have asked are absolutely silenced. And as this woman has had this conversation with Jesus, she's been affected. And she suddenly becomes receptive to what he's saying. I suppose we will never know how much her willingness to speak to Jesus was about her desperate loneliness, uh, her curiosity in a Jew speaking with her, uh, the divine hand of God on her life at this particular time, or even in fact it was all of these things at once. But she listens to Jesus and she weighs his words. And we know firstly that she seems to comply with Jesus' request for a drink. Even though his features and his dress show him to be someone who hates her people. And I, and I love the play on words here. I'm not sure if you've picked it up. When Jesus is thirsty, it's about the sixth hour. Dig into scripture about that one. And there's another play on words here as well and, and actions that go with it. This woman, even though hated by the Jews, gives Jesus a drink. And I wonder if this woman, in her willingness to provide for Jesus, was one of the first to fulfill Matthew 25, 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Just as those who did this for the least, this Samaritan woman is going to get a reward, a reward beyond her comprehension. This woman has asked Jesus how he, a Jew, can ask for a drink from her, a woman of Samaria. And Jesus answers, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What this woman doesn't realize is that Jacob's well has been a gift from God for many generations. And yet sitting before her is the answer to all of her problems, all of her needs. And she's oblivious to it. She doesn't understand here is Jesus asking her for water when it should be her who is begging Jesus for the living water he can so easily provide. She simply doesn't understand, but something changes. She begins to show respect to Jesus, short of supplying him a drink of water. But now, that changes. And where she just said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? Now she says, sir, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? There is something that has drawn her to Jesus. She doesn't understand his message, but she is aware that this is no ordinary man. Where can he get this water from? Is there a better well than Jacob's well? What is this living water? Is this man actually greater than our father Jacob? And the next few verses cover Jesus explaining why those who drink from Jacob's well will thirst again. But anyone who drinks the water that Jesus gives them will never thirst again. And she's captured by that. She wants that. She desires that. But she desires it for all the wrong reasons. She's just thinking about that one mile walk out to the well in the middle of the day. How hard it is. How sweaty that work is. And the one mile walk back as well. She doesn't understand what he's talking about. All she thinks about is the fact she won't have to travel to that well anymore. And we come back to that passage where Jesus calls her to get a husband. And Jesus draws from her the confession. 
that is vital for a transformed life. She admits she has no husband. The guy she is with is not a husband either. And then Jesus gently proceeds with her. You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And here's this wounded woman who attempted to hide her shame from this man. And she finds the very thing that would hurt her the most is the one thing Jesus uses as the catalyst to open her eyes. And she acknowledges that Jesus could only know what he does by being a prophet. And this causes her to ask about true worship. The worship that is not about a place, but which is about an attitude of heart. It's about those who genuinely seek the Lord and desire to honour God the Father and worship him in spirit and truth. And her mind begins to open to what Jesus is saying. There's a light that begins to dawn. And she responds to all Jesus says with this comment. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. She still doesn't fully understand, but she reveals what she does know. One is coming, and this one who comes will explain everything to us. He will make it clear to us. And this woman has been taken by the place of worship, but Jesus wanted to show her the spirit of worship is more important than that place. It's about the heart. A place isn't holy because of its location. There are many who gather in churches who are strangers to the spirit of worship because they do not understand that each believer is called to worship God in spirit and truth. A worship that can only be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jesus reveals to this woman the only basis for acceptable worship is that transformed life. And she is transformed. It was to this woman that Jesus revealed that basis for acceptable worship. She perceives that he is a prophet, and as such she believed that he knew the nature of true worship. And she, here she is conversing with this Jew, and her mind is opening in all that he's saying, and he leads her to confess the power of the coming Messiah. And then Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. It's incredible that Jesus makes this declaration to this woman. This is the first time that Jesus embraces his own rightful title and declares it. He does it on Samaritan soil. He does it with a Samaritan woman. Jesus, who is a Jew, still leaves the Jewish leaders hanging when they try to determine if he is claiming to be the Messiah six chapters later in John 10. But to this woman, he declares he is the promised Messiah, the one that she spoke of. Here before her, is the one who will teach and tell all things. The Messiah is God's word in the flesh, who will reveal the Father and his will. Think about what's happened here. This is a conversation just between Jesus and this woman. There is no one else present. This is a secret, private conversation. It's him and her. And this Jew before her revealed to her that he knew all things about her life. And then he confirms her thoughts. 
It is he who is the promised Messiah. How privileged is this woman to hear from his own lips that he is the Messiah. This new truth floods her mind. It's overwhelming. She, she can't grasp it. She doesn't know what to do. She leaves her water jug behind and she returns to the city. The news that she has heard is so good, so overwhelming, so mind-blowing, she cannot hold it to herself. She has to tell others. And although those who live in this city don't want to know her, have outcast her, have nothing to do with her, she cannot keep this from them. They despise her. But the news she has is far bigger than that. And she goes and she says to the people of the city, come and see this man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the promised Messiah? And her conversation with Jesus has turned her life around. He revealed to her a new and better life that she could have in him. And it so affected her, so transformed her, that everything the people in the city said about her was soon forgotten. She wanted them to know the same thing. So passionate was she that she witnessed to them in such a way that they came out to hear him themselves. The woman brought the message of the gospel to the Samaritan city and they were brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus because of her willingness to tell, him, tell them about him. And we know that from John 4.42. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard this for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world they questioned and inquired because of her fervent testimony but they ultimately believed because they heard the truth of Jesus words for themselves and Jesus ministered to the Samaritan city for two days and many believed because of what he said I think there's a bit of a wake-up call here for each and every one of us. And I, th I think the, worst, the first wake-up call is that there is no one who is beyond redemption. There is no one who is beyond the reach of our loving Heavenly Father. Jesus revealed himself as the promised Messiah to this Samaritan woman, a person who the priests of the day would have believed would have been the last person that the Messiah would want to speak to, let alone reveal his true identity to and that's what we have to get over. I believe we so often get in the way of Jesus reaching people because we have preconceived ideas about those he can speak to. I've had an experience in my life, uh, a young lady who um, was in our youth group, I'm possibly, yeah, I'm talking many, many years ago, a few decades. A and this was just one of those girls who continually hooked up with violent men. Uh, and, and this girl... She would call at ridiculous hours after being beaten up and I'd go around and get her out of that place and, and I, I can't tell you how many times this happened. And, but it was a cycle. She constantly returned to those same type of men. And it was frustrating over the years and years and years that I did this and, and I stopped praying for her. It's just like this girl, she knows the truth, she knows what she should do and she doesn't do it. Five husbands and one that wasn't. You know this girl, I went back to Bundaberg, it's possibly five years ago now, and uh, this girl, 
um, what actually happened, she ended up, she married one of these guys who was a violent guy. He was actually um, in a motorcycle organisation and uh, it was quite common for them to be cleaning weapons in her house and some of my family members was there when they did that as they went out to hit someone and uh, that, that was the type of world that she was involved in. And so she was married to this guy and she had two sons and she has AVOs out with both her sons. They're both in jail. She has an AVO out against her husband who's also in jail and for obvious reasons. And I went back to Bundaberg and I heard that this woman was back in town. And I was like, wow, she's still alive. That was a bonus. What I wasn't expecting was them to say, you will not believe the amount of people that she brings to church. You will not believe the great witness that she is. They were right. I couldn't believe it. The same woman. No one, no one is beyond the redemption of God. No one is beyond his hand. And we may sow the seed and see no return. And it is not up to us. We have no right to demand a return from God. We are called to sow the seed. Someone else comes along and waters. Someone else comes along and fertilizes. Someone else ultimately will be there when that seed is harvested. But it is the work that has gone in prior to that brings this person to faith, a work that is only done by Holy Spirit. It is not done by man. And this woman that I'm speaking of is working mightily for God in that place now. When we think about this Samaritan woman, she was so impacted by Jesus that she can't help but invite others to come and meet him. She wanted them to experience the same grace, the same forgiveness, the same empowerment, the same love that she experienced. Have you experienced that? Can you testify that Jesus is so good to you that you've experienced his grace, that you stand in that grace and it is so incredible, so overwhelming, so mind-blowing that you cannot help tell others about it? Is that where you're at? Because that's where we should be at. We should be excited about our faith. And I think so often we're a bit like the disciples who come back and it's like, why would he be talking to this woman? This is nuts. He's talking to a woman and a Samaritan woman. And we just heard in town that she's actually one of the worst women in town. Why would he do this? And we get in the way of Jesus. We stop people getting into the kingdom because of our judgment, our preconceived ideas. And we've got to get out of the way and let Jesus do his work. If you can't do it, invite him along so someone else can. We need to stop rationalizing and justifying our inaction. We need to just submit to Jesus and allow him to work through us. I want you to think back to the first guy, Nicodemus, in John 3. He knew the scriptures. He knew about holy living. He knew about doctrine. He knew, or thought he did, what was right. And yet he wouldn't talk to this woman. It would be abhorrent for him to do so. We need, we have so many people who think they know scripture. It's a head knowledge. They've never got the true message of scripture. It's never been something that's transformed their hearts. And it's never moved into action to minister to those around them.
if you are unable to help lost souls, don't do or say anything that hinders them from coming to Christ. I want to emphasise our desires as leaders is that we will be true disciples who desire to help sinners find their saviour. It's that simple. Let's pray.